Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. We have not yet seen a vigorous lean into these tests, despite how massively important they could be. That's Dr. Michael Minna. He's an epidemiologist, an immunologist, and a physician at Harvard. You could say he's a man with many hats, and lately he's been a vocal advocate for widespread, rapid COVID testing, tests that could be done at home in as little as five minutes. These tools have so much promise, and people are going to have this next to their kitchen sink or next to their bathroom sink. And if your kid has a fever... You don't have to bring them to the doctor. You just pull out a little tube that says, hey, check if it's flu, RSV, or COVID, and you swab their nose or their cheek, and you stick it in the box here, and a few minutes later, you you know what your kid's sick with. To hear Dr. Minna describe it, these tests sound amazingly simple and amazingly useful, maybe even game-changing in terms of helping control the spread of COVID in the United States. I really think that COVID is serving as a catalyst here for shaving 10 years off of the development of these tests to get them into the homes today. So that, you know, by 2022, I think we should all expect really the diagnostic landscape to look quite different. For today's episode, I talked to Dr. Minna about our country's current testing strategy, the difference between testing to diagnose versus testing for public health, and what we can do to raise our testing game in the United States to the next level. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, and this is Coronavirus, Fact versus Fiction. I would say that the earliest days of this virus, we knew quite well just how transmissible it was. I mean, still, you know, by mid-January, we had seen that the virus had moved to nearly all regions of China to other countries in the region where it was, and that was just the detected cases. So I was also seeing the massive restrictions in testing that at that time, most epidemiologists hadn't really thought about testing as a limit to our understanding of the virus. Um, But from my perspective, I was looking at China and a lot of these data sets saying, you know, we're just barely touching the tip of the iceberg in terms of what we're seeing. So if we're actually just detecting it in eight different countries, it's probably in 20 different countries. Mm. I want to talk about that part of things and the rollout of testing and how it went and how it's still going. But if you could, just give us a little lesson around some of the terminology for a second, because PCR tests, antigen tests for the presence of the virus. There's antibody tests for the presence of antibodies, obviously. Then they talk about these rapid tests. People oftentimes don't even know exactly what kind of test they got. But how how do you simply explain these different tests? Yeah, so the two biggest buckets are looking for uh, the viral RNA, which is genetic code. And then one is actually looking for viral proteins. Uh, let's, Let's take a crime scene. I'll describe these two. So you have PCR looks for genetic code and antigen looks for proteins. Uh, If you have a crime scene, 
and you have a detective that can go into that crime scene and find blood on the floor, they can then use PCR to detect that the crime was there. Uh, maybe it's still happening for all we know, but, but also they can detect the DNA long after the crime had been committed. So that's PCR. It just needs remnant RNA. But antigen tests, which look for the proteins of the virus, actually need to see the real virus in action. They need to see it there. And I liken uh, an antigen test more to a security guard. You know, they're there to see the the crime in action right right then and there. If the crime's been committed already, that's when you call in the forensics detective. If it hasn't been committed already and it's going on right now, both tests could potentially work. But the security guard is probably a really good one. And and then... The antigen tests, are those typically interchangeably called rapid tests? Yeah, so I call them rapid tests quite often because antigen tests, they don't need a machine to sort of uh, do a molecular reaction. They, they usually are direct detection. I'm holding one. I know people listening won't see this, but what I'm holding here is just a little strip of paper, uh, and it's essentially got some lines on it, and one line means that you're negative and two lines mean you're positive for the antigen test. And this shows up, the lines will show up in about five to 10 minutes. And uh, it's very, very simple to use. You just swab the front of your nose, put that swab in a little tube of buffer and drop this piece of paper into the tube. And just like a pregnancy test, it shows a line. So it's very, very quick, usually between five and 30 minutes, depending on the brand. If you're doing a PCR test, the polymerase chain reaction test, you're taking a sample and then there's some sort of amplification of the material so that if there's even a little bit of this this genetic material, this viral RNA, you're likely to catch it. The, the wrap on antigen test seems to be that um, you're, not, you're not really amplifying. You may miss it, and therefore the false negative, saying that you are negative and you're not, you're in fact positive, that's going to be a bigger concern with these antigen tests. Is that true, and is it a big concern? Uh, it's true, and it's uh, it's not a big concern if you're using the test as a public health tool. Uh, and what I mean by that is you can have a test, and a test might be applied by a physician to know if your, sim- if your patient's symptoms are due to COVID. So if I have a patient who comes to me and says, Doc, you know, I've been feeling crappy for, for two weeks, and uh, I just want to know if I have COVID, then as a physician dealing with this one patient, I want to know if they have any remnant uh, virus. I want to do everything I can, just like a forensics detective, to know is there a current infection or maybe was there an infection last week? Now, if I switch my hats and I put on my public health hat, I want to say, I don't care if somebody was infectious two weeks ago. I want to know is the person who I'm testing today needing isolation today? And that's where these tests really shine. They will be positive when somebody's contagious, for the most part. Uh, There's a small window of time for a few hours beforehand when PCR might be positive, but the antigen test will be negative. But that window of time is short, say five, eight, 10 hours. Hmm. So all of the concern that you're raising, which is that there's been a massive amount of concern that maybe these are missing cases, it's almost always after people are infectious. And, uh, and that's because the, after you're infectious, you could think you just went through this massive battle. You had trillions of viruses in your nose growing and your immune system beat it down. And essentially what, what is left on that battlefield is a tremendous amount of viral RNA 
that takes potentially weeks or months to clear. So the PCR will keep picking it up, but you're no longer infectious. So these tests don't detect there. So that is what mistakes people. They think that the antigen test is low sensitivity, but really it's doing exactly its job. So now the real question, I guess the actionable sort of question, actionable data you're trying to get is if I'm not sick, if I don't have any symptoms, I feel fine, but I want to I want to know whether or not I may be contagious. If I took the antigen test, then I would know the answer to the question I'm really asking, which is not, do I have the virus, but uh, am I contagious? Am I likely to spread the virus? Is that right? That's exactly right. And that is, uh, I think it's the question, as you say, that the average person, public health official or not, the average individual wants to know, am I contagious? Am I a risk when I go to see my mom for Friday night dinner? You just held up this piece of paper. It's got a couple strips on it. It looks you know, like a very you know, easy, small piece of paper. I guess the obvious question is, and I know one that you've struggled with, is why don't we all have these? I mean, why on a daily basis or a regular basis, at least, if I were to know that I was contagious with a simple test like that, I, I, I feel like it could have a huge difference, Right. Uh, We have such a regulated environment. We have the FDA that is kind of all controlling in some ways of what tests are available. The FDA, unfortunately, only has a single lens through which to look at a coronavirus test. Their only mandate as an FDA when it comes to testing is to evaluate uh, medical diagnostic tests. So that means that when they ask for an evaluation of this rapid test, They want a certain sensitivity level against a comparison test. They require that the comparison be a PCR test. Mm -hmm. But if you go out and test a thousand people and you find a hundred are infected or are PCR positive, uh, it could be anywhere from 50% to 80% of those people or more are no longer infectious. So the antigen test would rightly turn negative. But the PCR test would still be positive. And so when you go and you give that data to the FDA, they say, whoa, 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 you're finding only a 20% sensitivity on that antigen test. And I could say, well, but FDA, you know, the antigen test is catching 100% of the most infectious people and 85% of everyone who's likely infectious. And they say, but relative to PCR, RNA, it's only 20%. And that is what's slowing all of this down. We don't have the legal framework or the regulatory framework to think of a test in the United States as a public health tool, only as a medical diagnostic tool. How would you describe our current testing strategy then in the United States? How would you define it and how would you say that it's working? Well, for the vast majority of Americans, the testing program that they are, that they are being sold, if you will, Uh, This type of surveillance PCR testing is simply an illusion of public health. Uh, And I say that because, you know, if you're not testing frequently, you're not going to find yourself when you're contagious. By the time somebody has symptoms and decides to get a test, they've already been transmitting for days. Hmm. By the time they get that test and then get the results back two or three days later, they have already gone through their whole transmission window for the most part. And that's what we have failed to see is that the, while the test might be great, it's slow, it's not easily accessible for most Americans, 
And that leaves us with a public health testing regimen that has a sensitivity of about 5%. That's incredible. So the idea of just scaling up existing PCR tests, would that be a good strategy to scale up existing PCR tests? It's not. So when you aggregate it in public health terms, it's the delay that does everything. It'll always be more damaging then, you know, you could drop the sensitivity of this tremendously. And as long as it's rapid, it will be much, much better than any PCR test that needs to be sent to a lab. And they have these PCR tests that do these 15-minute quick analyses, right? That was the original Abbott test. I think the one that they were using at the White House. But it's linear in the sense that if you have 10 people, then it's 150 minutes, right? That's exactly right. You'll never be able to scale those up. You see these mistakes made, and that's when we get, you know, a lot of false positives and false negatives. It's such a complicated thing, and it's fine if you have robots and you have really, really intensely trained staff, but to scale up PCR across the country, you're going to end up with a lot of people who aren't well-trained doing these tests. So I just don't think scaling up PCR is appropriate. And then the other important piece is uh, is we need these PCR tests for all of the other stuff that we do. In our hospital, we had to stop doing HIV testing and viral loads in-house because we don't have enough PCR reagents because they're all getting sopped up by COVID testing. You, the, the, the test I remember, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, the, the rapid test was about five bucks a test, right? Is that, is that roughly the, because the PCR test can be, you know, up to $100, $150. That's exactly right. These tests can all be produced probably for a dollar, you know, or less. They're sold with profit, you know, for $5. You know, would I like to see it at a dollar? Yes. Um, and could the government do it? Absolutely. The government could have months ago, you know, used the DPA and taken control and, and set the prices very cheap. Every American could have uh, a whole slew of these tests in their homes. You know, for just a small amount of the trillion dollar bills that are being appropriated, uh, every American could have a test, uh, multiple. They could have tests for months. And, and that's the kind of testing. If we actually got these tests into the average American's home and we asked every American to use a test twice a week, it takes 30 seconds to use, you brush your teeth, you use a COVID test, uh, that would be enough to empower people to know their status. And if they are positive, they would be able to essentially know that they're positive and make the appropriate changes. And just finally, you picked twice a week in terms of the time frame, because from the point that someone gets exposed to the virus to the time that they may test positive on one of these rapid antigen tests, four or five days, right? Is that what you said? That's correct. So uh, the time course would be you get, let's say it's a Monday or you, you, on day zero, you get it exposed. Day three, you might turn positive on a PCR. Uh, later that night, day three and a half or maybe early day four, you might, you'll turn positive on an antigen test. And so the whole idea of every, of twice a week is to shave off considerable p- part of people's infectious uh, course. And so if you're using it twice a week, you know, even if you turn positive in the middle of your two tests, by the time you do test, especially because it's rapid, you'll be able to pull yourself out, you know, when you've only been spreading for one and a half or two days instead of five days or six days. You know, just small differences that could help at an aggregate level really, really dramatically reduce spread overall and allow us to really start tackling it. 
Lately, it seems like there have been two different conversations around this pandemic. On the one hand, it's amazing that we've got vaccines already out for distribution and that the end is hopefully in sight. But on the other hand, the trends have been looking worse and worse in terms of new infections and hospitalizations and these tragic, sad deaths. Last week, more than 4,000 people in the United States died from COVID in a single day. Just to give you an idea, that's like 10 jumbo jets crashing in just one day. And testing could help a lot. We haven't talked about it enough lately, but it could make a big difference. President-elect Joe Biden is now calling for $50 billion to scale up our testing efforts, including those rapid tests Dr. Minna was talking about. If you have questions, please record them as a voice memo and email them to asksanjay at cnn.com. We might even include them on the next podcast. We'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.